This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Shawl by Cynthia Ozick. She was sure that Stella was waiting for Magda to die so that she could put her teeth into the little thighs. The story was chosen by Joyce Carol Oates, whose stories have been appearing in The New Yorker since 1994. She's the author of more than 40 novels and 29 story collections. Her latest novel, Carthage, came out in January. Hi, Joyce. Hi. So you did the podcast about five years ago, and at that point you chose a story by Eudora Welty called Where Is the Voice Coming From?, which was about a white Southerner who kills a, a black civil rights leader. This time you chose Cynthia Ozick's The Shawl, which is a Holocaust story. And both of these stories are set, you know, very sort of iconic moments in history. Do you think that they work in similar ways as fiction? I think I'm drawn to these both these stories because of the succinctness of the structures, the power of the voices, the headlong momentum of the language and the aesthetic qualities, probably, well, the first thing that that gripped me about them. But as you say, each does deal with these very significant times in history, and they're, they're very painful. Both of them are very, very painful. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about when you read the Eudora Welty story was the sense that, that she, in that story, as the title showed, had, in a sense, been inhabited by a voice. And Cynthia Ozick, talking about this story, said... I'm just going to read you a quote from her. We read now and again that a person sits down to write and there's a sense that some mystical hand is guiding you and you're not writing out of yourself. I think reasonably if you're a rational person you can't accept that. But I did have the sense, I did this one time in my life, that I was suddenly extraordinarily fluent and I'm never fluent. I wrote those five pages as if I heard a voice. So do you think that perhaps this this sense of being inhabited by a voice that isn't one's own is the driving force for both stories? Well, I think that's true. I was surprised to hear that Cynthia Ozick said that because we do know that Cynthia writes very slowly and, and perhaps laboriously and does a lot of revision and has lots of in, indecisive moments. So that's a, that's actually extraordinary. I, mean, it's a, <laughs> I have moments, you know, when I feel that I'm inspired, if that's the word, and I write somewhat fluently. But there are not that many moments, you know, and usually one spends a lot of time revising and there's pleasure in revising, but there's a kind of ecstatic thrill in getting a voice that seems to be coming through your fingertips, so to speak. And it's quite rare. And of course, Cynthia's story is a small gem amid, you know, great heaps of Holocaust material. All of it profound and and harrowing, but not all of it gem-like the way hers is. Do you think there's anything else that people should know before they hear the story? Prepare to be deeply moved. Great. We'll we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Joyce Carol Oates reading Cynthia Ozick's The Shawl. Stella, cold, cold, the coldness of hell. How they walked on the roads together, Rosa with Magda curled up between sore breasts, Magda wound up in the shawl. Sometimes Stella carried Magda, but she was jealous of Magda. A thin girl of 14, too small, with thin breasts of her own, Stella wanted to be wrapped in a shawl, hidden away asleep, rocked by the march, a baby, a round infant in arms. 
Magda took Rosa's nipple, and Rosa never stopped walking, a walking cradle. There was not enough milk. Sometimes Magda sucked air, then she screamed. Stella was ravenous. Her knees were tumors on sticks, her elbows chicken bones. Rosa did not feel hunger. She felt light, not like someone walking, but like someone in a faint, in trance, arrested in a fit, someone who is already a floating angel, alert and seeing everything, but in the air, not there, not touching the road, as if teetering on the tips of her fingernails. She looked into Magda's face through a gap in the shawl, a squirrel in a nest, safe. No one could reach her inside the little house of the shawl's windings. The face very round, a pocket mirror of a face. But it was not Rose's bleak complexion, dark like cholera. It was another kind of face altogether, eyes blue as air, smooth feathers of hair, nearly as yellow as the stars sewn into Rose's coat. You could think she was one of their babies. Rosa, floating, dreamed of giving Magda away in one of the villages. She could leave the line for a minute and push Magda into the hands of any woman on the side of the road. But if she moved out of line, they might shoot. And even if she fled the line for half a second and pushed the shawl bundle at a stranger, would the woman take it? She might be surprised or afraid. She might drop the shawl, and Magda would fall out and strike her head and die. The little round head. Such a good child, she gave up screaming, and sucked now only for the taste of the drying nipple itself. The neat grip of the tiny gums. One might have a tooth tip sticking up in the bottom gum, how shining, an elfin tombstone of white marble gleaming there. Without complaining, Magda relinquished Rose's teats, first the left, then the right. Both were cracked, not a sniff of milk. The duck crevice extinct, a dead volcano, blind eye, chill hole, so Magda took the corner of the shawl and milked it instead. She sucked and sucked, flooding the threads with wetness, the shawl's good flavor, milk of linen. It was a magic shawl. It could nourish an infant for three days and three nights. Magna did not die. She stayed alive, although very quiet. A peculiar smell of cinnamon and almonds lifted out of her mouth. She held her eyes open every moment, forgetting how to blink or nap, and Rosa and sometimes Stella studied their blueness. On the road, they raised one burden of a leg after another and studied Magda's face. Aaron, Stella said, in a voice grown as thin as a string, and Rosa thought how Stella gazed at Magda like a young cannibal. And the time that Stella said, Aaron, it sounded to Rosa as if Stella had really said, let us devour her. But Magda lived to walk. She lived that long, but she did not walk very well, partly because she was only 15 months old and partly because the spindles of her legs could not hold up her fat belly. It was fat with air, full and round. Rosa gave almost all her food to Magda. Stella gave nothing. Stella was ravenous, a growing child herself, but not growing much. Stella did not menstruate. Rosa did not menstruate. Rosa was ravenous, but also not. She learned from Magda how to drink the taste of a finger in one's mouth. They were in a place without pity. All pity was annihilated in Rosa. 
She looked at Stella's bones without pity. She was sure that Stella was waiting for Magda to die so that she could put her teeth into the little thighs. Rosa knew Magda was going to die very soon. She should have been dead already, but she had been buried away deep inside the magic shawl, mistaken there for the shivering mound of Rosa's breasts. Rosa clung to the shawl as if it covered only herself. No one took it away from her. Magda was mute. She never cried. Rosa hid her in the barracks under the shawl, but she knew that one day someone would inform, or one day someone, not even Stella, would steal Magda to eat her. When Magda began to walk, Rosa knew that Magda was going to die very soon. Something would happen. She was afraid to fall asleep. She slept with the weight of her thigh on Magda's body. She was afraid she would smother Magda under her thigh. The weight of Rosa was becoming less and less. Rosa and Stella were slowly turning into air. Magda was quiet, but her eyes were horribly alive like blue tigers. She watched. Sometimes she laughed. It seemed to laugh, but how could it be? Magda had never seen anyone laugh. Still, Magda laughed at her shawl when the wind blew its corners, the bad wind with pieces of black in it that made Stella's and Rosa's eyes tear. Magda's eyes were always clear and tearless. She watched like a tiger. She guarded her shawl. No one could touch it. Only Rosa could touch it. Stella was not allowed. The shawl was Magda's own baby, her pet, her little sister. She tangled herself up in it and sucked on one of the corners when she wanted to be very still. Then Stella took the shawl away and made Magda die. Afterwards, Stella said, I was cold. And afterwards, she was always cold, always. The cold went into her heart. Rosa saw that Stella's heart was cold. Magda flopped onward with her little pencil leg scribbling this way and that in search of the shawl. The pencils faltered at the barracks opening where the light began. Rosa saw and pursued. But already Magda was in the square outside the barracks in the jolly light. It was the roll call arena. Every morning Rosa had to conceal Magda under the shawl against the wall of the barracks and go out and stand in the arena with Stella and hundreds of others, sometimes for hours. And Magda, deserted, was quiet under the shawl, sucking on her corner. Every day Magda was silent, and so she did not die. Rosa saw that today Magda was going to die, and at the same time a fearful joy ran in Rosa's two palms. Her fingers were on fire. She was astonished, febrile. Magda, in the sunlight, swaying on her pencil legs, was howling. Ever since the drying up of Rosa's nipples, ever since Magda's last scream on the road, Magda had been devoid of any syllable. Magda was a mute. Rosa believed that something had gone wrong with her vocal cords, with her windpipe, with the cave of her larynx. Magda was defective without a voice. Perhaps she was deaf. There might be something amiss with her intelligence. Magda was dumb. Even the laugh that came when the ash-stippled wind made a clown out of Magda's shawl was only the air-blown showing of her teeth. Even when the lice, head lice and body lice, crazed her so that she became as wild as one of the big rats that plundered the barracks at daybreak looking for carrion, she rubbed and scratched and kicked and bit and rolled without a whimper.
but now Magda's mouth was spilling a long, viscous rope of clamor. Ma! It was the first noise Magda had ever sent out from her throat since the drying up of Rosa's nipples. Ma! Ah! Again! Magda was wavering in the perilous sunlight of the arena, scribbling on such pitiful little bent shins. Rosa saw. She saw that Magda was grieving for the loss of her shawl. She saw that Magda was going to die. A tide of commands hammered in Rosa's nipples. Fetch, get, bring. But she did not know which to go after first, Magda or the shawl. If she jumped out into the arena to snatch Magda up, the howling would not stop because Magda would still not have the shawl. But if she ran back into the barracks to find the shawl, and if she found it, and if she came after Magda holding it and shaking it, then she would get Magda back. Magda would put the shawl in her mouth and turn dumb again. Rosa entered the dark. It was easy to discover the shawl. Stella was heaped under it, asleep in her thin bones. Rosa tore the shawl free and flew. She could fly, she was only air, into the arena. The sun heat murmured of another life of butterflies in summer. The light was placid, mellow. On the other side of the steel fence far away, there were green meadows speckled with dandelions and deep-colored violets. Beyond them, even farther, innocent tiger lilies, tall, lifting their orange bonnets. In the barracks they spoke of flowers, of rain, excrement, thick turd braids, and the slow, stinking maroon waterfall that slunk down from the upper bunks, the stink mixed with a bitter, fatty, floating smoke that greased Rose's skin. She stood for an instant at the margin of the arena. Sometimes the electricity inside the fence would seem to hum, even Stella said it was only an imagining, but Rosa heard real sounds in the wire, grainy, sad voices. The farther she was from the fence, the more clearly the voices crowded at her. The lamenting voices strummed so convincingly, so passionately, it was impossible to suspect them of being phantoms. The voices told her to hold up the shawl high. The voices told her to shake it, to whip with it, to unfurl it like a flag. Rosa lifted, shook, whipped, unfurled. Far off, very far, Magda leaned across her air-fed belly, reaching out with the rods of her arms. She was high up, elevated, riding someone's shoulder. But the shoulder that carried Magda was not coming toward Rosa and the shawl. It was drifting away. The speck of Magda was moving more and more into the smoky distance. Above the shoulder, a helmet glinted. The light tapped the helmet and sparkled it into a goblet. Below the helmet, a black body like a domino and a pair of black boots hurled themselves in the direction of the electrified fence. The electric voices began to chatter wildly. Ma, ma, ma. They all hummed together. How far Magda was from Rosa now across the whole square, past a dozen barracks, all the way on the other side. She was no bigger than a moth. All at once, Magda was swimming through the air, the whole of Magda traveling through loftiness. She looked like a butterfly touching a silver vine, and the moment Magda's feathered round head 
and her pencil legs and balloonish belly and zigzag arms splashed against the fence. The still voices went mad in their growling, urging Rosa to run and run to the spot where Magda had fallen from her flight against the electrified fence. But of course, Rosa did not obey them. She only stood, because if she ran, they would shoot. And if she tried to pick up the sticks of Magda's body, they would shoot. And if she let the wolf's screech ascending now through the ladder of her skeleton break out, they would shoot. So she took Magda's shawl and filled her own mouth with it, stuffed it in and stuffed it in, until she was swallowing up the wolf's screech and tasting the cinnamon and almond depth of Magda's saliva, and Rosa drank Magda's shawl until it dried. That was Joyce Carol Oates reading The Shawl by Cynthia Ozick, which first appeared in The New Yorker in 1980. In 1983, The New Yorker published a kind of sequel to the story called Rosa. The two pieces appeared together in the book The Shawl, published in paperback by Vintage. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Joyce Ozick has said several times that there was one sentence she read in The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer, which involved a baby being thrown against an electrified fence, and that that stayed with her and was the origin or the trigger of the shawl. There are so many millions of horrible stories from the Holocaust. Why do you think this particular detail was that sort of grain of sand that uh, generated the pearl? In Cynthia's particular case, it would be because of the phenomenon of a mother losing her baby and the mother standing there rooted to the spot and being unable to move and watching this awful thing happen. I'm sure it was that maternal connection. But there's nothing more horrible. I mean, the idea of a baby being sacrificed in that way is very horrible. If there's something almost fairy tale like about this story, you know, the way that the, the shawl is a magic shawl and it can yes. it can nourish a child for three days and three nights and and this image of Stella is kind of, you know, a hovering would-be cannibal and this, this evil figure in black with a helmet. Do you think that's a way of making the story palatable by putting it into forms that are familiar to us or something else? Well, it may be the, the rhythms of the language are somewhat dreamlike, too, and the characters are entranced in a kind of horrific, under a horrific spell. You find out in, in Rosa, the, the sequel to The Shawl, that uh, Stella is actually Rosa's niece, Magda's cousin, not her sister. And you also find out that 
Magda was very likely the result of a rape by a German soldier. That would explain why she looks so Aryan. Do you think that knowing those things from another story should change the way that we read this one? Because well, I, I read it, you know, the first time thinking Stella yeah. was the sister, not the cousin. In a way, I would rather the the shawl stood by itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's an, uh, there's an amplitude of almost sociological and historical detail that we get with the longer story. But the gem is really the first story. The story, the shawl, we begin it in Stella's point of view. You know, you have that first line, Stella, cold, cold. And you have the first sort of emotion in the story is her feeling jealous of Magda. And then we switch to Rosa's perspective and stay there for the rest of the story. Why do you think Cynthia did that? Why start just very briefly in Stella's mind and then move? Cynthia may not have any idea why she did that. There's something about these very short, short stories that come out so quickly and are very lyric and powerful. It's often the case that you write something down and everything follows from that. But if you look at what you've written down in the beginning, it may not actually have even been a sensible thing or a logical thing. It's just just the beginning, you know, and and that triggered everything. Are we meant to feel that Stella is culpable here, that she, by taking the shawl, has caused Magda to die? No, I think it's something that happened. It has this fairy tale logic. The girl is 14, I think. Mm -hmm. Is she 14? And she's ravenous with hunger and... No one can judge anyone in in such a a perilous physical state. There's that sort of extraordinary line. To me, it's the most surprising line in the story where Rosa is looking at Magda out there in the arena. And it says, Rosa saw that today Magda was going to die. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a fearful joy ran in Rosa's two palms. Her fingers Mm -hmm. were on fire. She was astonished, febrile. Mm -hmm. What is going on? What is that joy? I don't know what the joy is. It's just that maybe... The dreaded possibility is now going to happen and it will be over with. When really terrible things happen in your life, there is only the relief that they're over with. Like they can't, that won't happen next week because it happened last week. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's quite quite illogical. It may be something like that. And of course, one doesn't know that this is the consequence of a rape in that first story. So much, you know, is made of Magda's looks and how she doesn't look like. Rosa or Stella and how she has those eyes that are horribly alive like blue tigers. Yes. Are we meant to feel ambivalent about her? Is there something, there's something strange going on in the language that's used to describe her looks and her eyes? That is true. That is true. I've noticed that, but I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I'm sure that the author's not suggesting that this is actually a demonic Mm -hmm. little baby. I don't think that's part of the story. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much feeling that's sort of flushed into the language with these with these images. Yes, the and little unexplained sticks, feeling, scribbling and the scribble on her legs, her pencil legs, yeah, her pencil legs, yeah, yeah. Rosa's final act in the story is an act of self-preservation. Mm-hmm. She has a choice to make. She can either die with Magda, or she can watch Magda die alone, and she chooses the second one. And the experience of reading that is is not it's not unlike reading you know Styron's Sophie's Choice mm, where she yes. has to choose which of her children will die at yes. Auschwitz. Do you feel implicated in that moment as though you too have to make a decision? Mm. Well, you know, you should feel that she made the right decision. In a way, it was much harder for her not to run. You know, it was harder for her to stay in there and stuff the shawl into her mouth because she's 
choosing to live, which is actually much harder than just running out there and getting killed. Cynthia Ozick grew up in New York. She was a teenager living here during the Second World War. And when this story came out, some people took her to task for writing about the Holocaust when oh, really? she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And she didn't dispute that. You know, she, There was one interview where she said, in a sense, I have no entitlement to this because it's an experience in a death camp. I was not there. And in the Paris Review, she said, I, I want the documents to be enough. I don't want to tamper or invent or imagine. And yet I have done it. I can't not do it. It comes, it invades. What do you think about that question? Do you think that a person should be allowed to fictionalize moments like this, which have not been experienced? Well, we can't have a directory or a, yeah. a handbook on the shelf and page yeah. through and see what, what we're allowed to do. Yeah. I mean, are you allowed to write about a man? Is he allowed to write about a, a woman? Or should we write about animals? You yeah. know, basically, the imagination just can't be constrained. So, absolutely. Especially if you write as well as Cynthia does. You can write about anything. <laughs> <laughs> she herself said in the, uh, in the Paris Review interview, she said, I, I always say, forget about write about what you know. Write about what you don't know. The point is that the self is limiting. The self subjectivity is narrow and bound to be repetitive. When you write about what you don't know, this means you begin to think about the world at large. She wasn't talking about about the shawl or about mm-hmm. the Holocaust at that point. But that's a good I, point. And you too often write fiction that's connected to real events or that draws on real tragedies, which aren't aren't your own. Where do you stand on on that issue? Do you ever feel sort of a reluctance to to take someone else's disaster? And turn into fiction. Oh, not at or, all. No, I think that most people are in the world are quite mute. Many people have just died uh, voiceless. So it's up to people who do have the, the wherewithal and, and the ability to, to write, to tell their stories. I, mean, I, I basically come from a whole background where people were not educated, and they all had stories, and their lives were quite painful in some cases. And otherwise, if, if one doesn't tell their stories, they're completely lost. You're just completely lost. You have to do a lot of research to become familiar with the past enough so that you can almost forget it and just write. But then maybe you do need some audacity or some feeling that you you can appropriate voices not your own. To me, I think it's just a little more work. There are so many, so many nonfiction accounts of the Holocaust and so many personal testimonies. Do you think that there's a need to fictionalize? I don't know that there's a need necessarily maybe to do almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> Why I bother mean, writing at all? Is it required? Yeah. Well, well art, art is, comes out of a magnanimity of spirit, let's say. Mm-hmm. Art is somewhere beyond what, what is needed. We need food and shelter and basic things. Then art is something that makes of the physical life something spiritual and gives meaning to it so writing fiction if it's well written particularly gives specific meaning to things that otherwise are somewhat mute they're facts and history Sebald does that he does that in all his writing and he was not in the holocaust but he had been sent away yeah, from Germany so he yeah. was actually in, uh, in England but he's absolutely haunted by that and his writing is so powerful. I think writers are drawn to the profound, too. And there's a sort of luminosity of something that's 
almost too profound for you to write about and scary and terrifying, but you're drawn to write about that because it is, is so challenging. Well, thank you so much, Joyce. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Joyce Carol Oates' new collection of stories, Lovely Dark Deep, comes out this fall. A story in that collection, Mastiff, was read by Louise Erdrich in a recent episode of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes Store, where you can download more than 80 previous episodes. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you think of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 